From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Weeks ago, President Trump was banned from nearly every social media platform because of his role in the events at the Capitol building on January 6th. Just before Congress was set to certify Joe Biden as the next president of the United States, Trump instructed his supporters to, quote, fight much harder against bad people and show strength at the Capitol. The social media bans on Trump and his supporters ignited a debate about whether these social media companies have too much power over the speech of their users. Should they have banned Trump sooner? Are these bans legal? What kind of precedent does banning Trump and others set for the speech of marginalized communities? And should the government rein in the private sector power of these companies? Here to address some of these questions is Kate Ruan. She's Senior Legislative Counsel for the First Amendment at the ACLU. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by addressing and sort of getting out of the way the piece of this conversation that involves now former President Trump and his social media behavior. And the conversation is obviously bigger than Trump, but this is just a good entry point to get us started. And I want to begin by reading a statement that we put out after it was announced that a number of these social media companies were in some form censoring Trump or permanently banning him from their platforms. And this statement is attributed to you, and it says, For months, President Trump has been using social media platforms to see doubt about the results of the election and to undermine the will of voters— We understand the desire to permanently suspend him now, but it should concern everyone when companies like Facebook and Twitter wield that unchecked power to remove people from platforms that have become indispensable for the speech of billions, especially when political realities make these decisions easier. President Trump can turn to his press team or Fox News to communicate with the public, but others, like the many Black, Brown, and LGBTQ activists who have been censored by social media companies, will not have that luxury. It is our hope that these companies will apply their rules transparently to everyone. All right, so let's break this down at a very high level. When it comes to banning Trump on Twitter and other social media platforms, what are we essentially saying? Are we in favor of the shutdown? What are the concerns that we have with the shutdown? So when it comes to Donald Trump, what we're essentially saying is somebody like Donald Trump has plenty of other outlets for his speech, but we do think that the companies had very sympathetic reasons for banning him this time around. The question in my mind is, if you look at Trump's speech over the course of his time on these platforms, the speech that they banned him for is very similar to a lot of what he had been saying for so very long. And so the questions that it raised, I think, for us are the same questions that the ACLU has been pointing out to speech platforms that are so big, that are responsible for the speech of billions. So we're talking about Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, It raised the same questions for us as questions that we have had for a long, long time in that content moderation policies for these big companies are difficult to understand. When they censor speech, they often get it wrong and their rules are not transparent and they're not transparently applied. And when they do get it wrong or when users think that they get it wrong, there's no clear or accountable due process for any ability to have these issues corrected 
over time. So it's why you see things like videos of violence in Syria being taken off of YouTube, even though they are documenting war crimes. It is why you see things like women of color who are repeating racist insults that were communicated to them by white people offline being censored when they try to share and call out these acts of white supremacy, these acts of racism online. So, you know, Black women have repeatedly been censored on platforms like Facebook for sharing racist incidents that happened to them and to their children on Facebook, even though they're not the ones that are engaging in the racist aggression. They are describing racist aggression that has happened to them in the real world. These big platforms are just bad at making those decisions. And our point was, you know, Donald Trump will be fine. At the time that all of the platform banning happened, he could have walked down the hall in the house that he lived in and continued saying whatever he wanted to say. But I think two days after he was banned, he did walk down the hall in the White House, did run into a bunch of reporters, said something very similar to what he had been saying that got him banned from the platform. A reporter took it down and then tweeted it out. So there's an imbalance. There is a lack of clarity and a lack of due process and an imbalance in the ways that these big platforms are moderating content. And as the ACLU, we just have a deep skepticism of companies of companies or governments with that much power to censor people's speech. And we were trying to draw attention to that. Whether we agree with whether they took down Donald Trump's speech or not, that power is something we should continue to be skeptical of. And even if they did the right thing by taking Donald Trump down at that moment, or if they should have done it a long time ago, we should still be interrogating that power and the way that it affects all of the rest of us and our ability to communicate. And I want to go way deeper into our deep skepticism. But first, I want to address a point about the statement, which is that in response, and I have to say that it's very important to contextualize that this statement came out when there was a lot of emotion about the years of bigotry and racism that Trump has been spouting. And some people read that statement and they read it as not being strong enough in calling out Trump for his responsibility in the days and the years leading up to the Capitol attack and sort of like not being supportive enough of any movement or any attempt to quell that bigotry or at least quiet it a little bit. And so what was your response to that? This is a difficult question because Donald Trump's speech and frankly, the speech of many of his followers and his enablers is racist, and it has caused tremendous harm to communities of color. Repeated harm, both the words themselves, because you cannot deny the power of words. I'm a free speech advocate. It is contradictory to claim that the words themselves do not have power, but also the real world violence that it has inspired and the policies that it has enacted essentially over the course of four years have caused real harm. And these are difficult questions that frankly, the ACLU continues to struggle with because we are a free speech organization. But at some point, we're not talking about free speech anymore. We're talking about action. We are talking about harassment. We are talking about harm. And so it is definitely not something that we support. We condemn that speech. We condemn the policies that he enacted over the course of his time as president. But it's also worth thinking about the fact that a lot of his communication on social media, especially on Twitter, we used as evidence in mm. a lot of the lawsuits we brought. It was a mm. window 
into his mind. And therefore, we were able to use it against the administration in lawsuits where we were trying to stop a lot of the harm that he was causing, that the president and his administration were causing. So these are all things that we have to take into account when we are thinking about how we are approaching what we are going to ask these companies who have a First Amendment right to host this speech or not, and we defend that right. These are things we have to think about when we're thinking about approaching those policies, because another thing we also have to consider is that one of the reasons that we knew what was going on in the Capitol to any degree on the day that the racist white supremacist riot happened and the clear attempt to undermine our democracy and stop the counting of the votes and reverse the results of a free and fair election, one of the reasons we had any idea what was going on was social media. So those are all things that we want to take into account when we are advocating towards these companies who have a First Amendment right to keep the speech up or leave it down. Those are things that we want to think about when we're designing our recommendations for that reason. And I think you're bringing up another point, which is that it's very hard to consider these questions when we're talking about world leaders and their use of social media platforms and the outsized attention that sometimes those people get versus the ecosphere of activists and so many others trying to have a voice in this and whose voices have historically by social media companies in documented cases have been quelled. And so I think that that's part of it. But I want to come back to these issues. I first want to get out of the way, I think, the easy part of this, which is the legal question. And it's not always true that the legal question is the easy part. But in this case, it seems to me that most people, except for like people on the margins of this conversation, agree about the legal side. You know, it's the question of did these social media companies have the right to ban Trump? Can you answer that piece of yes, the puzzle? Yes, they did. Period. End of sentence. They absolutely did. And more than that, they might have had a bigger right to ban Donald Trump than they do anybody else because he was president of the United States at the time. Publishers are not required to carry the speech of the government without criticism. They are not. Period. End of story. And just to recap, the First Amendment applies to the government's censorship of speech. Okay, I think one area where this all becomes murky for some people is that there are instances where it seems like private companies do not have the right to refuse service. And this is in the arena of public accommodations. Can you distinguish for us how what Twitter, for example, did is different from when a bakery or a barbecue joint refuses to serve someone because of the color of their skin or their sexual orientation, for example? Well, Donald Trump doesn't fall into any protected class, for one thing. And his service was not denied on his basis of membership in any protected class. If Twitter denied someone the ability to use Twitter, if they denied me because I'm gay or if they denied you because you're a woman, that would be a different question. This was a decision to publish particular speech versus not. I think the more interesting question here is, and one of the things that the ACLU has based a lot of its policy around online speech is the continuum of companies that exist on access to the internet. Because the closer and closer and closer you get to a company providing you access to the internet, the more the ACLU thinks that there should be neutrality in decisions regarding the provision of service. So for example, the ACLU supports net neutrality principles and net neutrality rules for internet service providers. We do not want internet service providers making a decision about the content that anyone who is their customer can access on the internet. 
So this is like Verizon and AT&T and right, exactly. whatever your cable service is. Exactly. The ACLU is a strong supporter of net neutrality because those companies should not, they are perfect gatekeepers to the internet. And if they can decide what you can and can't see, that's a very, very big problem for online expression. And we've seen examples where that was a problem. Like there was an example in 2007 of Pearl Jam's lyrics getting censored when AT&T was providing a service to live stream a concert of theirs, right? And that was an example that worried us. Right. And that he was criticizing President Bush at the time. We actually saw an example right after January 6th, right after Twitter decided no longer to host Donald Trump. There was a small internet service provider in Idaho, I believe, that tried to block their users from being able to access Twitter and Facebook because they were angry at Twitter and Facebook for having banned the president. That's not something that should be happening in this country. And if Idaho or the United States government had net neutrality laws, it couldn't have happened. Right. But coming back to the social media platforms, what is our position? Like, how does that then get regulated? There is a continuum. We think that net neutrality principles can be legally applied. But as you move further and further away from the access point to the internet, the less concerning it is when a company engages in editorializing, basically, or publishing related decisions. Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube exist in a somewhat different place for us because they host and are responsible for the speech of billions and billions of people globally. Their power is such that when they exercise it, we are more cautious about their exercise of that power. They are not a smaller platform that is only between 100 to 5,000 users, where when they make editorial decisions, they're trying to create a platform that is for a specific thing. We're here to talk about tennis. Okay, then you can probably ban people that aren't here to talk about tennis. You want to talk about soccer, go somewhere else to talk about soccer. Like, that's okay. But... When you don't have access to Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, that can cause real-world harm to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like People build businesses there. They build advocacy platforms within these larger platforms. I mean, arguably, the free press is incredibly dependent on Twitter and Facebook for ad revenue, for all kinds of things that make their messaging capable of reaching other people. Right. And Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube are run by people, and they make mistakes. And more and more, they're run by algorithms, which definitely make mistakes. And even more than, I think, regular people can wind up multiplying the real-world systemic racial inequities we live in, right? So Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you have algorithms are written by people. Algorithms are intended to make the decision that people would make at scale. And so if there's a mistake in the algorithm— that mistake is going to perpetuate across every decision that the algorithm makes. And let's also name that the heads of these companies are almost uniformly, to my knowledge, white, wealthy men. And so anything that they dictate streams down is going to have, to me, any kind of explicit or implicit bias that they hold. Correct? Yes. And studies bear that out repeatedly over and over again. All things being equal, People of color are censored more on the internet, period. Can you give some examples? Because I think that they're hearing the examples is really, really evocative. So there's just been two in just recent history. There were two that the ACLU of Northern California represented. The first is Black Zebra Productions. They are an activist group. They are a journalistic platform and they were sharing content about 
police violence at protests and they shared one particular video. And after having shared it, their Facebook page was disabled. No real explanation from Facebook as to why. And Facebook doesn't have any obligation to explain it to them. So we've been trying to get an explanation. The other example was a band called Unsung Lily, where they are wives, they are married to each other, and their album cover, when they released it, was a photo of the two of them with their foreheads touching. But Facebook banned them from placing an ad with that image in it because they said it was sexually explicit. Well, and the best part of that story to me is that they had no idea why they were banned. They were racking their brains. And mind you, it's the middle of COVID. This is their main way of trying to fundraise for their band. And they published an ad with a heterosexual couple doing exactly the same thing. And that ad was not banned. Same ad. Yeah. Same ad. Yeah. And in Black Zebra Productions, in that case, my understanding is that because they had some ACLU representation, because that situation got some publicity, Facebook told a media outlet, it might have been Mother Jones, that the reason was because they thought it was a copyright problem. But that seems very fishy. And also, why isn't there a process by which that was obvious? If that's the reason, make it obvious and then give a person the ability to argue it. Yeah. Why wasn't that in some notice sent to Black Zebra Productions? There's been a copyright claim made on the video that you shared. Right. Okay. Because that's a resolvable thing. That's a resolvable thing. (laughs) You call the person who owns the copyright and you say, I shared your video. Can I keep it up? So yes, I mean, like that's part of the problem and part of why we call for transparency and clarity in the content moderation rules and real and meaningful due process. Because if I'm just sending request to be reinstated out into the ether and I never get a response back, then that's not meaningful due process. Or the response I get back is there was some kind of rule violation, but no explanation as to what. That's not due process either. And when these platforms are responsible for all of us being able to connect to vast audiences of people, they need to be more responsible. Right. And the flip side of this is, of course, that their rules have historically disfavored some groups, but actually over time seem to favor people like Trump. Like Facebook has been documented as sort of contorting their rules or shifting their rules to allow him to keep going because end of the day, Facebook, Twitter, all of them are profit-driven companies. They have a bottom line. They have shareholders they have to be accountable to. So it seems like It's the twofold. It's the keeping some people off who need to have that voice and then adjusting their rules to sort of suit whatever their current need is. I mean, also part of this conversation is that they had a lot of cover by banning Trump at this point. He is about to not be president. It is about to be a supermajority for Democrats. Like, there was some cover for them. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's interesting that he was deplatformed as the levers of power were about to be handed off entirely to the opposition party. And I think what you're getting at is something that is a feeling that we all have. There is a political convenience in the decision-making of the platforms where you left up his speech for four years. And before that too, because I don't want to erase racist lies like birtherism, which he propagated for years and years and was permitted to continue to do without any kind of check on him by the platforms at all whatsoever. So there's, I think what you have highlighted is that there appears to be one set of rules for the powerful and a different and completely opaque set of rules for the rest of us. And that is not how this can continue to operate. That is 
if the platforms have been consistently creating expectations and applying their rules clearly and consistently throughout time since they began to take responsibility for the speech of so many of us. I don't think that there would have been any confusion over whether President Trump should have or would have been banned. It would have been, oh, yeah, I mean, this is what they do. Like, when you do that, this is how the platforms will react. Instead, it feels like they're building the plane while they're flying it and creating a first-class cabin for some and a coach cabin for the rest of us. And in the coach cabin, it's even less clear how the rules apply to you. And I think, too, what you're saying punches a lot of holes in their Blythe argument over the years, which is that they are simply the vehicles for the marketplace of ideas. But what you've shown is that this is anything but free. Your rules have not set up a free marketplace of ideas. There is inequity baked in at every level. Right. And there's two things. They're not neutral and they don't have to be. They've never been neutral. Facebook, since its inception, has not been a free speech platform. Try being a breastfeeding mother and posting a picture of yourself on Facebook and see what happens. So it's never been a free speech platform ever. They market themselves that way, but it's not true. They are not neutral. They create the type of quote-unquote community they want to create. But the other thing that you pointed to is they are businesses. And with businesses, their profit motive is to maintain and capture our attention as much as possible because their business isn't to sell us speech. Their business is to take our data and then Mm -hmm. sell us. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. Like, I do think that the big platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, because that is, I want to be very clear that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about every single platform. I do think that those big platforms would much rather be having a conversation about content than about data. Interesting. Yeah. And I think another piece of of what we're asking for here are basic consumer rights. And to me, it seems like we're acting like this is a brand new conversation, but there are plenty of instances where the government gets a say in how publicly accessible utilities are regulated, right? An oil company doesn't get to just like, well, depends on who's in power. But generally speaking, there are rules around what you can put into the air. Is that sort of the same model here in what we're asking for the government to step in? Well, what we would be asking for is for the government to give people basic rights over their data, basic consumer privacy. We've been asking for this for years and years, where if a company is going to take your data in exchange for some service, whatever it might be, there should be basic rules of the road for what data they can take and then what they can do with it. In that they shouldn't be able to take every single bit of data that they might be able to extract from you. They should only be able to take what they need to take in order to give you the service you asked for. And then they should only be able to do with it what you permit them to do. So if, for example, you do not want them selling your data to a data miner that is then going to provide it to the government, you should be able to stop them from doing that. Those are the things that we've been asking for. And those sorts of rules of the road are are actually regulations of the business model itself. And if there was data, if there was data minimization, if there was some kind of control, if you, if you did have rights to your data, if, if you could write to Facebook tomorrow and say, delete all my data, everything that you've got on me, and then that right was enforceable, Facebook might have room to need to rethink the business model of capturing your attention and only your attention, which is what it currently relies on. Interesting. I also want to spend a little time on the solutions that have been floated that we actually think 
should not be put in place. And I think one is around what I've read is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which basically protects platforms' ability to moderate content without becoming liable for that user speech. Is that, can you explain a little bit more around that? Because I think it's something that people have been exploring is a really good option, but we have some concerns around. Sure, absolutely. I think your summary of Section 230 was pretty good in that, it, generally speaking, that's what it does. It provides platforms, liability protection for the speech of their users generally. And this is an old thing. This came out in 1996, right? It's existed since 1996. It is not a license for illegality on the internet. It doesn't apply to any federal criminal laws, for example. It doesn't apply so to child porn. property. Right. So it does not apply to those things. But it has been foundational to online expression for a bunch of reasons. Because at the time it was enacted, the idea was for companies to permit free speech on the internet, to allow users to be able to post on their platforms without having to engage in what is called pre-publication review. So without having to review what you're doing to make sure that they weren't going to experience legal liability for anything that you would have posted, which means that you get to post to Facebook immediately. You get to post to Twitter immediately. You get to post to anything you want to immediately. And that has been incredibly important for the development of ideas. It has been important for advocacy. It has been important for so many things. Yelp wouldn't exist. You know, Yelp wouldn't exist. The bed bug registry wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have those sorts of resources online without Section 230. So that's one of the reasons that the ACLU has been very supportive of it. The other reason is because anytime you try to uh, you try to make a change to that liability shield, the companies themselves are going to react like the profit-driven companies that they are. And they are going to logically attempt to avoid any potential liability. So mm. the only time that Congress has removed or changed 230 was in a law called SESTA-FOSTA. And SESTA-FOSTA was supposed to eradicate sex trafficking from the internet. And it only applied to what was supposed to be speech that was damaging women who were being sold against their wills into essentially sexual slavery. Instead, what happened is once that law was enacted, sex workers were the ones that were truly harmed. They were put in danger almost immediately because all of the platforms that they had been using, all of the online platforms that they had been using to share information, to maintain their health and safety, to vet potential clients, they disappeared and they weren't able to use them anymore. It drove many sex workers back out into the street. It also eliminated a lot of their intellectual property. So to the extent that they were engaging in online advertisements or there were pictures of them, those disappeared too. And then it also expanded out to harming the speech of LGBTQ people and to the speech of sex educators because it all surrounded sex in some way or another and the companies just drew a big circle around everything that was maybe, I don't know, sex trafficking related and silenced everybody, regardless of whether it was actually something they could have been legally liable for or not because they just didn't want to take the risk because they're companies and right. that's their business judgment. So that's one of our big concerns with changes to Section 230 because that's how the companies are going to react. They're going to censor more than they actually need to censor in order to avoid the lawsuits. And the other thing is, it's the small platforms that actually suffer the most. 
Hmm. They're the ones that can't afford to do all of the content moderation that Google, Facebook, and Twitter can do. Or litigate around it. Or litigate around it. And so they disappear. They disappear. The smaller platforms, the ones that would be the ones that are open to marginalized communities, that would be looking for niche markets, they're the ones that disappear first. Hmm. And then the final point I want to make is often we're not talking about speech that can actually be censored pursuant to the First Amendment. So if you're talking about as horrible as the speech might be, when you're talking about speech that is certainly harmful to communities of color, it is nonetheless not something that can often be constitutionally prescribed. So the question that I would want to ask when we're thinking about 230 is, are we even getting at the problem we need to get at? Or are we just creating risks that we are going to silence the communities we really do care about and we want to protect and that are historically marginalized and censored online? It feels really important to acknowledge that as we talk about the problem of Trump on Twitter, the problem is actually bigger than Trump on Twitter, right? Like, I think actually Mike Masnick on Tech Dirt said it really well. And he said, I'm just going to quote, Trump is obviously too toxic for Twitter, but he's also too toxic for the White House. And the real complaint shouldn't be about Twitter or Facebook acting too late, but about Congress failing to do their job and remove madmen from power. And I, I think what that points out is that this is also about larger questions around voter redistricting, about access to the polls, about even the internet writ large, about having and demanding a better internet. And I'm curious how you think about this issue in the context that this is actually one piece of the puzzle. I mean, everything is voting rights. <laughs> everything is voting rights, in my view. I don't see how we can call ourselves a free and fair society until every single person with the right to vote has the ability and ease of access to it and their vote actually counts. And what we saw through the end of the Trump presidency was the clearest attempt yet to disenfranchise the votes of people of color by the president of the United States. And I think- Members of Congress as And well. members of Congress, yes, members of Congress- and, you know, a white supremacist mom that actually stormed the Capitol and effectively delayed the counting of the votes that certified the election of President Biden, who won the freest and fairest election in this country's history. So I think two things. One, there should be an investigation and consequences for the people that tried and failed to undermine this election. That's one. And that is why the ACLU called for the impeachment of President Trump. And that is why we have also called on the Department of Justice to investigate President Trump, his enablers, and anybody else that was involved in what appears to have been an attempt to undermine a free and fair election. And then the other thing is we all have to work like hell to ensure and to expand voting rights in this country. That, I think, is the other piece of this. And this is a really important moment because it was so explicit. It was so out there, the attempt to disenfranchise, particularly Black communities. It feels like an inflection point that we all need to act. And this pattern has been going on since the beginning of this country. But in recent decades, it's been harder to name. People have called it other things, election fraud, all kinds of things to make it seem like it wasn't what it actually was. And this moment is a moment where we saw it clear as day. And it just feels like 
this is absolutely the time to go for expanding voting rights. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so helpful and I just really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. Stay strong.